Good morning. Hey, uh, my name is Aaron, and uh, I'm glad to be here this morning and to have an opportunity to uh, open up the Word with you and see what God has to say to us. If you have a Bible, I'd love it if you'd open it up to the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 6. That's where we're going to be. We are doing a series on prayer, uh, specifically focusing in on what's often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. So that's in Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback one under the seat in front of you. If you'd grab that one and you want to turn to page 811, that's where we're going to be this morning. And, uh, and we'll look at that together. Uh, so here's where we're going so far uh, with this series. Prayer is like this huge thing in the life of a Christian. And everybody knows basically or thinks we know what it is. And it sounds on its face very simple and straightforward. And yet, all of us to a certain degree struggle with the concept of prayer. Either with just doing it, with feeling like we're not doing it right, with questioning whether it's effective when we do it, all these different things that just swirl around. And our goal, as we go through this passage together and we look at what Jesus had to say in his very direct teaching on prayer, is to kind of inspire within us as a church as a whole, and each of us individually, a greater desire and a greater fulfillment in prayer. But here's a question, and, and maybe it's a question that goes unsaid often, but I'll bet some of you have wrestled with this question before. And it's a question that I think is really important. If we're honestly going to say, we want to pray more, we want to wrap our heads around what it is to pray, we want to pray effectively, and all of those kinds of ideas, I think the first question that we need to deal with why should we even pray at all? And, and let, me, let me tease that out a little bit in this way. If God really does know everything, and if God is going to do whatever God's going to do, because he's all-powerful and he's in control and he knows what's best, and so God's going to do what God's going to do, why pray? Why ask God for anything if he's already going to do what he's going to do? And the flip side of that, if he doesn't know everything, and he's not just going to do whatever he wants to do anyway, well, why pray to that guy? Because he's lesser, and he's not able. And so you can tell him and ask him for whatever you want, and he can't actually do it. So God either is already going to do whatever he's going to do, and so there's not really much point in asking him to do anything, right? Or he'd love to hear what you have to say, and he's going to try, but it may or may not work out, and in that case, why pray at all? Experientially, that's philosophical. just in your own life, you've prayed for things before that didn't happen. And you prayed and prayed and prayed really, really hard 
And you prayed often and repeatedly over and over and over again, and it just didn't happen. And you found yourself asking, why am I even praying? What's the point? I think as we look at this passage this morning, and we're going to narrow in, we're going to read this whole passage, we're going to narrow in on the beginning of the Lord's Prayer on the first couple of verses in there, and I hope, I hope that as we look at this passage together, maybe those questions won't be completely answered, because those are big, huge, difficult questions. And those are things you're just going to, in some ways, have to wrestle with in your own heart as you work through your relationship with God, But I hope that what we start to see are the beginnings to answers to those questions together this morning. So let's look at this passage together, and let's see what Jesus has to say about prayer, and maybe it'll lead us in that direction as we go through that. I'm going to start in verse 5. We're going to read, like I said, uh, verses 5 down through 13. We're going to focus specifically this morning on verses 9 and 10. But let's read together. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word of the Lord. There's, um, there's a temptation to say, and we often do say, um, there's no right or wrong way to pray. When it comes to prayer, and this is, we try to encourage each other, we try to encourage other people, you should just pray, you need to pray, pray all the time. There's no right or wrong. You're just talking to God. Just talk to him like you talk to a friend. Just talk to God. Just talk to him. Jesus kind of goes directly against that here because he basically says, don't do this. This is the wrong way to pray. Do this. This is the right way to pray. And we've talked for the last two weeks about kind of the wrong way, the wrong approach. But now as we transition here, starting in verse 9, into Jesus' very direct instruction, here's the right way to pray. I think we need to pause and ask, what does that mean, the right way to pray? And this kind of gets to those questions we started with. Again, we've called this the Lord's Prayer. You've heard it before, probably. Even if you don't go to church um, you didn't grow up in church, you may have heard this somewhere before at a wedding or or seen it printed somewhere or something. You may have, if you grew up in church, you may have memorized this before. This may have been something that you've recited yourself because it was something you were taught, like you need to pray these exact words. And so I think it's important to understand, Jesus is not saying, first of all, he's not saying memorize these exact words and repeat them back mindlessly. Because he very explicitly says in verse number seven, don't heap up empty phrases. Steve talked about this last week. Don't just repeat words without thinking through what they mean. And so that's not what he's saying here. When Jesus says, pray then like this in verse nine, he's not saying memorize these words. These are magic words. If you say these words, you'll get what you want. 
Even more than that, and this is where this starts to get kind of tricky for us, when Jesus says there's don't pray like this and do pray like this, here's what he's not saying. And I think we have to kind of get our heads around this for any of this to make sense. The purpose and the point of prayer is not just to get something from God. There's a benefit to prayer. But the benefit to prayer is not always what we expect or what we go seeking for from prayer. And so what Jesus is saying when he says, don't pray like this and do pray like this, is not that if we pray this way, then we're going to get whatever it is that we want. Jesus is not giving us here a secret formula that we can enter in and get whatever it is that we're seeking from God. Instead, what Jesus is doing here, and when he says, pray then like this, and some translations will say in your Bible, um, the, the translation you're reading might say, pray in this manner. This is, this is the way, these are principles, these are things to understand, these are truths to bear in mind as you start a conversation with God that will help you and guide you to speak to him and to talk with him and to enter into prayer in a way that will be beneficial to you. Not beneficial in the sense of giving you whatever you want, but beneficial in the sense of deepening your relationship with him, deepening your understanding of who he is, and enriching your life through prayer. That there's a way of praying which will in some way make your life better, for lack of a better word. That if you pray in this manner, meaning with these principles, these ideas, and so we're going to go over the next several weeks, we're going to go through the different phrases that Jesus has here. Not so that you memorize them and repeat them mindlessly verbatim back to God, but so that the principles that he's talking about soak in And that when you go to speak to God, these ideas are foremost in your mind and they transform how you communicate with him. And so he starts, and the first thing, the first thing he says that we need to focus on when we are praying, and this is going to seem really obvious, But the first thing we need to focus on is who we are speaking to. When we um, when we speak, we naturally do this thing. Um, I like to call it audience analysis because I speak publicly, and so I think of speaking to audiences. But um, you do it naturally too, not up in front of people, but just in day to day conversations where you alter what you're saying and how you're saying it based on who you're saying it to, right? You know that. You you just do it naturally. Um, You have a conversation about the exact same topic but with two different people, and your vocabulary changes, your tone changes, your speech patterns change. Um, Let me me give you an example. Um, If you're driving and for some reason you never do this, but on this particular day... You, you edge slightly over the posted speed limit, and you never, ever speed. I know. 
and you have a conversation with somebody whose car is flashing, right? In that conversation, you talk differently than you normally talk to your friends, right? Then you go and explain exactly what just happened to somebody else who is a friend of yours. If you're married, you're talking to your spouse about it, right? And you're explaining why that chunk of your budget is going to be missing this month. And your tone shifts. Your vocabulary is different. To a certain extent, the content of your conversation changes. But based on who you're talking to, you change how you talk, right? When you're When you're talking to your professor about why your your term paper is not done, it's different than the way you explained it to your roommate last night, isn't it? Just slightly, there's a little bit of a difference. So we naturally tend to shift based on who we're talking to. And Jesus says here, when you pray, the first thing you need to remember is who you are talking to, because it will impact how you have the conversation. Now again, you go, yeah, but this is obvious. I'm talking to God. That's what prayer is. Prayer is talking to God. Okay, but what Jesus is saying here is there's some important things you need to remember and bear in mind when you talk to God about who he is that will shift and impact how you talk to him. If we want to have prayer that changes us and changes our lives, then the first thing we have to wrap our minds around is who we are talking to. And Jesus tells us two really important and seemingly opposite things about God right here just in this one verse that should and could transform the way we talk to him. So I want to show you what those are. Number one, when we talk to God, when we pray, we are praying to a loving Father. The first thing Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father. Jesus could have started any number of ways. There are any number of titles given to God in the scriptures. There are a vast number of ways that we think about and relate to who God is. He could have said, our Lord. Meaning, the one who's in control of us, the one who tells us what to do, the one who commands us and we follow. And he could rightfully have said that and we could rightfully address God in that way. He could have said, our creator, because God is the one who made all of this, and he understands all of this, and he knows how the world is supposed to work because he put it there, and he set it in motion, and he's in control of all of it. But he doesn't say that. He says, our father. Because the first thing we need to remember when we pray is that the God we're talking to relates to us, and he loves us. We can get it into our heads, and we can start to view God as this awesome, amazing, creative being who's totally distant, totally separate, totally different from us. And we're going to talk about that, but we have to understand the first thing we need to know about God is that more than that, or maybe more importantly than that, is he is our father. He loves us. Jesus intentionally chooses a relational word to remind us that God relates to us. We don't serve, and we don't pray to, and we don't communicate with a God who is totally distant, 
who doesn't understand us, who doesn't care about us, who doesn't love us. If you have a relationship with your own biological father that's marked by love and acceptance and care, then you'll understand and you'll connect with this analogy that Jesus is using. If you have that kind of a relationship where your father, where he's the guy that not only do you look up to him, not only do you respect him, but you go to him. When you have something exciting that you want to talk about, you go to your dad. When you're hurt and, and you don't know where to turn, he's the one you turn to for help. Then you'll understand what Jesus is, is getting at when he refers to God in that way. However, for most people, um, that's not how you would describe your relationship with your father. We're just coming out of Thanksgiving and now looking into Christmas coming up. And those are times that so much within our culture um, and within our society are centered around family and family gatherings. And uh, we try to paint sort of this rosy, romantic view of what that means to gather with family and um, the importance and the love of a family and all of that. But for many, many, many of us, those times are actually really, really hard. And for many, um, the idea of spending Thanksgiving with your father or seeing your father at Christmas is not something that you get excited about or that you look forward to. For some of you, it's not even possible. For some of you, you, you don't know and haven't known your father for many years, if ever at all. For others, the idea of your father, the idea of going to your father, the idea of having a conversation with or communicating with your father, um, it doesn't bring you joy or anticipation. It's fraught with, with fear, uh, with shame, with disappointment. For, for many, the idea of a father, when you think of a father, you think of, of this man who you want to please, but you don't feel like you ever could. And either explicitly or implicitly, he's made it clear that there's a certain standard you need to measure up to and you feel like you never have. And maybe he is really distant and you just don't feel like you can talk to him. Maybe he's been harsh. He's let you know how much of a disappointment you've been. And yet, when the holidays come around, or whatever time when you are going to go speak to him, you have this idea that maybe, maybe this time things will be different. Maybe now he's going to see you for who you really are. Maybe now he's going to accept you. Maybe because of the promotion this year. Maybe because of the new uh, girlfriend or the new boyfriend. Maybe because of the new house. Or maybe because of this or that or whatever. Maybe this time things will be different. Or maybe you've just given up and you've said it's never going to be different. It's never going to change. I'm just going to try to bite my lip and get through this day because I know who dad is. But always, whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas or the rest of the year, there's this voice in the back of your head. It's the voice of your father constantly telling you it's not good enough. You haven't done it. You're not getting it done. If that's the kind of father 
that you live with or have lived with or have, then the idea that God is your father is not reassuring or comforting. It certainly doesn't inspire you to want to go to him in prayer. So here's what I really desperately want you to hear this morning. That's not the kind of father that God is. In fact, God's the exact opposite kind of father. He's the father you desperately long for, that you've always wished you could have. And even if you would say that your relationship with your biological father is strong, God is even better. He has unlimited, unconditional love. He invites you to come to him, and he does accept you. And he does not have a checklist of what you need to do in order to make him happy. We can get, because of our experience with, with people in general, whether it's your father, your mother, or somebody else, we live in, in a world, and it's not even our culture, it's within us, the idea constantly that we have to measure up, that we have to be good enough. Honestly, even when some of us approach a passage like this in the Bible, and it says, don't pray like this, do pray like this, in our minds, automatically, that sets off the trigger. This is what I have to do to make God happy. Here it is, another list of rules. But there's this part of us that kind of likes that because it's like, okay, but this is clear. If I can do this, if I can follow these rules, then God will be happy with me. That's not what Jesus is saying here because that's not who God is. God is a father who totally and completely, unconditionally loves his children. And if you are his child, he loves you, period, full stop, no conditions, no if. And the first thing Jesus wants us to know when we go to pray is that we're going to pray to a loving Father. But then he pairs that with another phrase that's also just as true about God. And it seems to push in the exact opposite direction, but I want you to see that the two go together totally perfectly within our God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is not a word we use uh, ever, right? You've never said anything was hallowed. Um, It's a word that means to make holy. And holy is a tough word for us as well. But here's the second thing we need to know when we pray to God. Not only is he a loving father, he's also a holy God. And that's really important, but we have to understand what it means to say that God is a holy God. The word holy means separate, set apart. It means unique. It means different. In some ways, it can mean perfect. We think of holy as meaning religious right? And we think of like the Holy Bible, or we call Sunday a holy day, which are both fine phrases to use, but we need to understand what they mean. Because to say that God is holy means something specific. It doesn't just mean that he's really cool, really awesome, or really good. 
It means there is none other in the entire universe, no being anything like him. He is totally separate. He's totally unique. He is in his essence, in his being, in his creation. Here Jesus uses in his name, hallowed be your name. There is none other like him. There aren't multiple gods who are similar and he happens to be one of many. He's the only one. And he's not like us. We have a tendency to try to um, imagine and understand and anthropomorphize God in a way that says, I can understand him because I would do this. Therefore, God must be like that. If I were God, I would. But here's the truth of Scripture, and here's what it means to hallow God's name, to understand that he's holy. We can't create God in our image. We don't get to decide what God is like. God is who he is. He reveals himself to us. And he's not like us. He's something else, something greater, something bigger. The theological term for this is to say that he's transcendent. He is above us. And there is an essence to him that is more than, that is greater than, that is untouchable by us as humans. God is not our our, our buddy, and he's not just like us. He's not even within the scope truly of our understanding. All we know of God is what he has chosen to reveal of himself to us. And we can understand what he has shown us, but there is more to him than we will ever be able to comprehend. God is not like us. And here's the deal. That's really good. We would not want a God who's like us. Sometimes we think we would like to be God. Sometimes we want to control our world. Sometimes we wish we could control the entire universe. But if you really stop and think about it, would you really want someone like you in control of everything? God knows things that we will never know. He understands things we will never understand. He can do things we could never do, and that's really, really good news for us. As much as in our limited understanding, we would like to believe that we have everything figured out, that we know what would be best, that we know how the world should go and how life should go. We don't, and he does, and his way is infinitely always, always, always better than ours. Now, that can be hard to wrap our minds around because we can only see what we can see. It also seems really incongruent to say that there's this God who's totally separate from us and yet he relates to us. In fact, a lot of religions in the world disagree about this very question. They see these two, what Jesus is saying here, two different attributes about God, and they put them in conflict against each other. And they line up on one side or the other. Who is God? Is he, is he transcendent? Or is he the other theological term, eminent? Is he here? Is he present with us or is he out there? Is he holy or is he loving? Is he with us? Is he separate from us? Is he a person, a personal being 
Or is he supernatural and somehow different? And what Jesus is saying is the answer to all of those questions is yes. He's both. Now, don't rush past this. We need to understand that that that's totally impossible. Okay? How can we... (laughs) How can we be related to a being who is nothing like us? And I know you say, well, you should have been at my house on Thanksgiving, but that's not what I mean. How can we approach the unapproachable? How can God be totally separate and yet with us? How can I be so imperfect, impure, unrighteous, And yet, be so bold, almost verge on arrogance, to say that I can have a conversation with someone who is perfectly just, perfectly pure, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. There's no way the two could ever cross except through the one who's talking about it here, through Jesus. Jesus took the transcendent and he made it imminent. Jesus is and was perfectly holy and became human. He came from heaven to earth. He put on flesh. He lived among us. He walked among us. And yet he remained pure. He never sinned. He lived the way we should have lived but didn't. And he did it for us. Out of love for us. And he died and he took the punishment and the wrath that we deserved so that we could have relationship with a holy God. So that we could call God our Father. And don't miss this, that was God's plan all along. God, out of his love for us, sacrificed his son so that we could become his sons and daughters. We can call him father because the one who had the true an original right to call him Father, gave himself for us. He died and was sacrificed at the will of his Father so that we could enter into that relationship. And the transcendent and the imminent meet in Jesus Christ for us. it's only because of the gospel that we can pray, Our Father, you are holy. If not for Jesus Christ's sacrifice, we could never go to a holy God and refer to him as our Father. And yet because of his sacrifice we can understand the depth of his love for us. 
And now we can look on his holiness and his righteousness and his goodness and his sovereignty, his total control of everything, and we don't have to look at it with that sense of shame or guilt or fear that we're not going to measure up. We look on it through a different perspective. We look on it through his love. And we understand that what he does ultimately is for our good. And we can trust him. And we can say, verse 10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How can we say, God, you do what you want to do? How can we approach God and say, whatever you want, you do it? Because everything within me cries out, God, please do it this way. I've got it figured out. Just do what I'm asking and I'll be happy. Jesus says we can go to God and pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. And that's not fatalism. It's not throwing up our hands and saying, well, whatever. God's in control, so I guess it doesn't even matter. God, do what you're going to do. Instead, it's looking at God and saying, you are holy. You are just. You can do whatever. Hallowed be your name because you can do anything. And you love me. You're my father. You're a loving father. You're a good father. You're a father who accepts me and loves me, not because of anything I've done, but because of what Christ has done for me. And because you love me and because you can do anything, then God, do what you are going to do and let me submit to it. Please let me be a part of it. Let me, in my mind and in my heart, Give up and let go of my plans and my desires to follow yours. Does that rule out asking God for anything? If you had a totally loving, perfect father who you knew was really strong and powerful and wealthy, would that in your mind tell you that you should never ask him for anything? I want you to turn over, um, it's just the next chapter over, Matthew chapter 7. This is the same discourse, Jesus is still speaking, he, he talks on and, and touches on other issues, but he comes back around, I believe, to this same topic in Matthew chapter 7, verse number 7. And he again uses the metaphor, or, or maybe it's not even right to call it a metaphor, it's just who God is, he is our Father. In, in a very profound way. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, Jesus says, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. In other words, if you have ever gotten into your mind the idea that it's not worth praying because God's just going to do whatever he's going to do, Jesus is going directly against that here and saying, no, ask. Seek. Knock. Go to God with your requests. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, to the one who knocks it will be open. And then here it goes, for which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Now he's saying, I mean, think about if you're a father, or if you were a father, or a parent, if you're a mom, or a dad, or, or even if you're not, if you imagine what you would do if you were a parent, and your child came to you and asked you for something. 
and you could give it to them, and you knew it would be good for them, would you hold it back from them? If your kids come to you and ask you for anything that is within your power to grant them, and you knew that it wouldn't harm them in any way, in fact, it would be good for them, you would give it to them. That's what parents do. In fact, when you say no, the only reason you say no is either because it's not within your means, you're just not able to give it, or because you know what they're asking for is not actually what would be best for them. Um, Halloween uh, was just happened recently, and I just decided we needed to touch on every single holiday I could think of this morning. So, um, my kids went out trick-or-treating, and they had these massive bags full of candy. And the first question, of course, is, can we eat all of it? And because I'm a good dad, I say, well, first, I have to go through. I get first pick, okay? Um, No, I didn't. I did not. I promise I did not say that. I sneak their candy when they're not looking. I don't outright take it from them. Um, I would not be a good father if I just said, yeah, eat it all. Finish it before bed, right? Don't leave anything till tomorrow morning. Um, Because I know, because I'm older than them, because I have experience that they don't have, because I see the world in a way they just don't see the world that eating an unlimited amount of candy has negative, very detrimental consequences to their health. They don't see it that way. When they ask me for that, and I say no, it would be very easy for them to say, you are mean, and you are not giving me what I'm asking for. And sometimes that's how we see God. Sometimes what we're asking for, to use Jesus' words here, is we're asking for a serpent and God gives us a fish and we say, that's not what I wanted. And we look at verse 7, Matthew 7, 7, and it says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find. And we say, but I've asked before and I didn't get it. Here's what we have to see. Jesus is not saying, you will get whatever it is you ask for the way you ask for it, when you ask for it, and how you ask for it. What he's saying is when you ask, you will get what you truly need. Because God knows more than you ever will know what is best for you. Verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven, exact same phrase, Father in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? good things. Not what we think are good things, but what are truly good things. Now that's hard. Because again, I don't see the world the way God sees the world. He's holy. He's different. He has a totally different view of things. And so in my mind, everything should work this way. And when I pray, I ask for things to work in a specific way, in a very certain way. God knows something and is doing something that I'm not seeing. I love the way, I believe it's Tim Keller um, who puts it this way. When we pray, God answers our prayers 
in the way that we would pray them if we knew everything he knows. God is so much above us. He understands things in a way that we will never understand. But we can go to him like children because we are his children. And he's a loving father. And he's not doling out good things based on how good we are when we come to him. He's not looking to see, are you following the pattern of the Lord's Prayer? If so, I'll answer your request. He loves us. So we go to him. And we don't say, I'm not going to go to him because, well, whatever. He's just going to do what he's going to do. We say, he loves me. And when someone truly loves you, you want to spend time with them. And the greatest benefit you get is not what they give you, it's them. It's the time you spend with them. The reason we pray is not to get stuff from God. It's not to bend His will to fit our desires. The reason we pray is because we get to experience the relationship of a truly loving Father. So Jesus starts and he says, when we pray, do not forget who we are praying to. One who loves us totally, completely, unconditionally, and is holy, totally separate, above us. And those two things are both true. And we can know him. And that's why we pray. Let's take some time and put a few questions for reflection up on the screen. Take this time to pray. Take this time to go to your Father. In a moment, we'll share communion together. Father, God, you are holy. And you are righteous and you are transcendent. And yet, you love us. <clears throat> God, please help us to never get over that. Please help us to never take for granted what it means to be loved by the creator of the universe. God, we have experienced so much relational pain, all of us. They can be hard for us to approach you, and yet you open your arms wide. You make a way for us to come to you through your Son. God, help us to trust more deeply in you, to follow you not out of fear, but out of love. Thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for not being like us. God, help us, help us to see you and be invigorated and excited about the prospect of going to you and praying to you. In the name of your Son, the only name that we're able to come to you in, 
We pray all of this. Amen.